Hello, and welcome to another installment of The Weird Chronicles. Each episode, we bring you tales of action and adventure from Malifaux and the other side. Today's episode takes us to the Blade Street Children's Workhouse, one of Malifaux's most notorious dens of exploitation and suffering. Our story takes place on All Hallows' Eve. I hope you enjoy Mr. Stix's Halloween. Mr. Stix's Halloween by Graham Stevenson The world is a very curious and inexplicable place, as most people will agree. Malifaux is doubly so. This inexplicability surges and ebbs apparently at its own whim, but there are certain loci where the abnormal seems most potent, a handful of specific nights marked by some celestial calendar when the shadows grow long and the wise remain at home, with a bright burning hearth and a locked door. Perhaps the most terrible of these is All Hallows' Eve. The lords and their ladies hold balls and gala events in their great halls, to make mock of the occasion with paper masks, to laugh and truff on rich fare, and ignore the darkness that presses against their windows. Only when the celebration is done, the tables eaten bare and the musicians silent, will they turn up their collars and hurry to waiting handsome cabs to be rushed home, where the servants have gas lamps burning in every room to hold back the night. In the slums, the diversions are fewer. Those with a roof over their heads and a lit candle think themselves lucky on All Hallows' Eve. The less fortunate quest for a forgotten corner, a doorway to crouch in or mound of paper to burrow beneath, there to wait silent and still until the dawn, and hope to be overlooked. Awful spectres walk the dark streets of Malifaux on All Hallows' Eve. The flesher and the seamster are out, plying their trades and leaving grisly souvenirs for the dawn light to find. Needle-toothed Jack crawls down unlit chimneys and eats sleeping children in their beds, and the beast of Hawking Street returns once again to terrorise the residents of Calumny for a single blood-soaked evening. But there are other, less malignant happenings too. Events that, while not necessarily evil, are nonetheless exceedingly strange. Events like those that befell an otherwise insignificant lad by the name of Archie Rotbrick. Young Archie had been dealt an especially poor hand in the game of life. For most youngsters, having parents who were incarcerated in a debtor's prison was bad enough because it left them in the less-than-capable hands of one of the guild's poorhouses. For said parents then to die from consumption while incarcerated and leave the youngster in the permanent care of Blade Street Children's Workhouse under the gimlet eye of Miss Gilda Gork could be considered a depth of misfortune that one was unlikely to top. However, the cruel gods had seen fit to bequeath upon Archie both a smallness of person that belied his nine years and a club foot. Any one of these afflictions in the harsh and predatory environment of a guild poorhouse would have been enough to make any child's life a misery. So it went without saying that Archie's childhood to this point had been an exceptionally rough road. 
Life at the Blade Street Children's Workhouse was meagre, repetitive and often dangerous. They would rise at five each morning and recite the Guild Pledge to thank their betters for their morning gruel and black bread. Then the dining hall would be swept and its flagstones scrubbed with pails of water, lye soap and horsehair brushes. The factory began work at seven and, but for a half-hour lunch break at midday, ran on until seven in the evening. More due to the generous benefactors grudging concern that the gas lamps run any longer than any concern over the exhausted workforce. The weaving machines were reset, the floors were swept, and the day's produce folded and wrapped in huge canvas sheets, ready for collection the next morning. The children filed back through to the dining hall for barley soup and more black bread, and were put to bed by nine. And so it was every day, with the exception of Sunday, where the children were allowed the comparative luxury of a seven o'clock rise and a day of cleaning the entire poorhouse from top to bottom, finishing with a huge Sunday dinner of potato and onion stew and a spoonful or two of semolina if one could bolt down the stew and get back in line fast enough. The rest of the evening was their own to spend in whatever idle frivolity could be found before lights out at nine o'clock. Archie, being so small for his age, was a piercer. That is to say, his job in the workroom was repairing yarn breakages in the spinning mules. He tended two mules, both operated by one minder. The cotton brought from the creeling room was coarse and of low quality and frequently snapped on the rollers. Archie was required to race in and repair the thread before the rattling mule returned the length of the machine and crushed him. He worked with another boy, Moffat, who was the side piercer. Moffat was only six, but was already an inch taller than Charlie and quicker on his feet. Archie, in return, was more skilled and had survived four years as a piercer. Most boys grew too large for the dangerous work within two, or were maimed or even killed before they could progress. But enough of this. Strange events have been promised, and strange events shall be delivered. Archie was a lonely boy. Most of the young ones latched on to an older boy for protection or formed a gang. Archie was in the unenviable position of already being an older boy, but one that was both small and lame and unemployable in terms of gang membership. This made him a rich gold mine of entertainment for the gaffers and undergaffers, wiry tough boys of 14 and 15 who controlled the workhouse floor and naturally assumed this authority extended to all other areas of life at Blade Street. Archie would do his best to keep out of their eyeline, but all too frequently he would be spotted scrubbing a quiet corner of the poorhouse or stumping on his club foot to the back of the food queue. Cries of Stumpy and Jack of Clubs followed him everywhere, and he was regularly tripped or barged hard enough to send him sprawling while the older boys charged by. This just seemed to be the way life was, and Archie got on with living his as best he could. While many of his fellow boys could be cruel in a casual sort of way, there were a few pernicious individuals who possessed uncommon spite when it came to matters of Archie's well-being. The chief pebble in his club shoe was Dale Farber, or Salt Cod as he was often referred to behind his back. He was a workhouse gaffer, 15 years old, both tall and strong for his age, and proud possessor of a downy moustache that may or may not have come off with a lick from a cat's tongue. 
About a year ago, Mr Bartlett, the poorhouse director, had purchased several barrels of preserved fish from a trader, with the intent of varying the diet of his orphan charges without necessarily impacting the allotted food budget. That evening, as the children queued for their supper, each had a dried and wrinkled-looking fish deposited in his or her bowl rather than the expected barley soup. The fish had proven to be both tough and almost unbearably salty, and the resultant grimaces that filled the dining hall that evening were remarked on being reminiscent of the expression that usually adorned Dale's sour face while watching the workhouse floor. Had Archie the wisdom to see it, he would have recognised that Salt Cod's extreme rancour was born of fear. The boy would turn sixteen in the new year, and by law would be too old to remain housed within the children's workhouse. He would be sent to Black Vault Mill with grown men twice his age and size, where Salt Cod's bravado and authority would vanish faster than his dandelion moustache in a stiff breeze. For the moment, though, he was still a gaffer and had apparently made it his life's work to ruin Archie's at every possible opportunity. He regularly gave the smaller boy awkward cleaning duties, like the attic staircase, which was little more than a three-foot-broad spiral of stone steps, none of which were quite large enough for his club foot to gain secure purchase. The distant sound of a small body and accompanying pail of water clattering down the staircase to halt with a thump on the third-floor landing regularly invoked gales of laughter from the malicious gaffer. He was also resentful of Archie's notable skill on the workhouse floor. While Saltcod had held most of the positions at one time or another during his inexorable rise to gaffer, he had never demonstrated more than mediocre ability in any of them. The only area in which he excelled was his merciless exploitation and intimidation of his fellow workers, which, ironically, made him ideally suited for the role of gaffer. He would regularly find some excuse to pull Moffat away on a vague errand, leaving Archie to pierce for both spinning mules. Not only did this make his job twice as hard, but twice as dangerous. Each mule was over sixty feet in length, and having to dart back and forth between the two of them while avoiding getting tangled in the machinery was an almost impossible task. Archie never suspected that Saltcod was actively trying to kill him, but he felt that the gaffer might not mind his losing a few fingers to balance off all the commendations that Saltcod himself had never received for a job well done. The minders complained bitterly, of course, when Saltcod played this little game. After all, they were the ones that would get it in the neck when a sheet of inferior cotton with loose threads and gaps was inspected at the end of the day. Archie liked working on Bert's mules the best, because only Bert would stand up to the malevolent gaffer. Big Bert, as the other kids called him, was thirteen, and so deep in the chest it looked like he was smuggling a beer barrel inside his apron. Bert wasn't afraid of anyone, and wouldn't stand for any of Saltcod's nonsense about pulling a side piercer off the spinning mules when they were running. While Saltcod was the most obvious antagonist in Archie's small life, Mrs Gork was no less repugnant or cruel, simply more removed. She was a dormitory master, and as such controlled all aspects of the orphans' lives outside of the workhouse. She supervised the food that they ate, instructed the sewers in making the other orphans' clothes, if you could call shapeless rags clothes, organised the laundry shifts and controlled all other movements of her charges when they were not directly involved in manufacturing. 
She was a skinny, angular woman, apparently constructed of elbows and rope under her pinafore and work dress, which she was never seen without. The severe bun atop her head gave some indication of her character, as did the long nose like a stiletto blade and the small, exceedingly suspicious eyes. She never trusted an answer to her seemingly bottomless well of questions, unless it had been lubricated with pain, which is why it was a common sight to see a wincing child up on tiptoes trying to alleviate the fiery agony of having their ear twisted almost entirely around by Mrs Gork's long, ropey fingers, while she quizzed them mercilessly about where they'd been and just what they thought they were doing out here in the corridor when the dining hall was needing to be swept. It was such a common occurrence that many of the older orphans had markedly differing ears, one quite normal, the other shell-shaped and perpetually ruddy from years of twisting and contorting. This Blade Street phenomenon was colloquially referred to as being gawked. Mrs Gawk was in many ways a worse monster than Saltcott, but her lofty position within the poorhouse demanded that she spread her malicious attention across all the orphans equally, and as such she was never an immediate source of terror to Archie. More nebulous still was Mr Bartlett, the poorhouse overseer. He was the pinnacle of authority within the poorhouse, albeit a hugely fat and balding one. His cruelty was in some ways the worst, in that he never really seemed to be aware of the orphans at all. They were so insignificant a detail in his ceaseless quest for wealth that he never registered their presence, let alone have it occur to him that they should be tormented. Every Friday afternoon, a wagon from Slope, Bark and Cutteridge would arrive at the back door of the poorhouse. A detail of boys would be picked from the workhouse to load it with the fruits of that week's cotton labour, and the wagon would rattle away again, with Mr Bartlett perched atop it, like an especially fat cherry on a meringue. Not that Archie had any real idea what either a cherry or a meringue were. A handsome cab would return Mr Bartlett to the poorhouse some hours later, devoid of the huge pile of cotton sheeting, but now with a heavy jingling pouch attached to his belt, which was a fearsome thing of thick leather and heavy iron studs. He would trot up to his office on the second floor, humming to himself, and when he reappeared around 8.30 to take himself to the gentleman's club on Farlow Street, the pouch was substantially diminished, but still jingling. Someone would see him reeling back to his office in the early hours of the following morning, every once in a while. The pouch was always flat as a pancake. It was supposed that the remainder of the coinage was ensconced in the hefty iron safe in his office, which was the source of many orphan legends. Some said it was stuffed with gold coins, hundreds and thousands of them, all the ill-gotten gains of his forced labour. Others had grimmer suggestions, that it was filled with the heads of the boys that were sent off to Black Vault Mill to keep mum about how much income the poorhouse was really making, instead of the meagre portion that was siphoned off to the guild on the first of each month. The retelling of this latter myth was usually rewarded with a thump from Saltcod, if he was within earshot at the time. However, no matter how unpleasant the world got, Archie knew he could always depend on Mr Styx. With so many unsavoury characters in Archie's midst, and precious few fellow orphans willing to risk befriending him, Archie had resolved to make his own. He hadn't set out with the intention to create a companion, but things just sort of fell together that way. 
Mr. Sticks was, rather predictably, made from the remnants of an old switch broom whose binding had come undone. With some fairly death-twisting and twirling, simple enough after countless hours on the spinning mules, Archie had managed to craft a fairly passable body with arms and legs, splayed feet and long, scratchy hands. Of course, he would never have thought to build a body had he not first found the head. He'd come across it quite by accident, in the refuse pile behind the kitchens where the unwanted scraps, few that there were, were dumped for the cats and rats and other desperate denizens of the street to pick over. It was a turnip, a large and rather misshapen turnip. Someone had started to cut into it, only to find at the core it had gone quite rotten and had thrown it away. The long slice that had been cut out made a mouth of sorts, and where the rot had begun to blister the surface, a single black eye was formed. The two combined to form a winking face with a rather sardonic grin that had appealed to Archie. Thrust atop a sharpened stick with limbs projecting out below, Mr. Sticks had taken shape. Of course, it just wouldn't do for a Blade Street orphan to be seen wandering around and dragging a man-sized doll behind him, made of twigs and rotting vegetables. Archie had resolved that Mr. Sticks would have to live behind the refuse dump, in the corner where no one would notice him. He had propped his new friend up against the kitchen wall and arrayed his limbs in what looked like the most comfortable position. All things considered, Mr. Sticks seemed to quite like his home, leaning back at a jaunty angle behind a hip-deep mound of potato eyes, burned barley kernels and rotten onions. He never seemed to mind the smell and always had that cheeky, knowing grin on his face whenever Archie found a few spare minutes to visit him. Mr. Sticks became Archie's confidant. Archie found that he could tell his friend anything. He wasn't judged, wasn't scoffed at or ridiculed. Mr. Sticks just listened with his one black eye fixed on the middle distance, as though deep in thought and weighing every one of Archie's words carefully. Archie liked to think that Mr. Sticks enjoyed his visits as much as Archie did and hoped that his taciturn friend shared his outlook on life. Archie told him all about Saltcod and his tyrannical rule over the workhouse and about Mrs. Gork, who was never satisfied with any answer unless she'd wrung and twisted it out of you, and about fat old Mr. Bartlett, who hoarded all the coin from the workhouse in his office and who gorged every night on rich food at the gentlemen's club while the orphans ate black bread. He told Mr. Sticks about the little piece of green glass wedged in the attic window and how sometimes, while he was sweeping the attic floor, the sun would catch the window in just the right way and a thin green lance of light would crawl slowly all the way across the room. He told Mr. Sticks about Godfrey's milky eye and how sometimes it would shine like a cat's in the candlelight. He told his friend about the family of mice that lived under the floor of the kitchens and how, if you were very still and patient, the piebald one would eat crumbs of bread right out of your hand. Archie was always desperate to stroke the mouse's fur, but he never did, fearing it would bolt away and never come back. He told Mr. Sticks about Bert's barrel chest and how he could do push-ups with a boy sitting on his back. Archie had tried to do push-ups once and couldn't manage any. He told him about how the dormitories got so cold in winter that ice formed on the insides of the windows and how one time Willie Poole lost the skin of his palm when his hand stuck to the iron rail of his bed. 
He talked about the time he found a beetle in his potato and onion stew, and when he spooned it out onto the table, it fluttered its wing casings to shake off the residue and marched away as proud as you please. He even told Mr. Sticks about the time he was cleaning in Mr. Bartlett's office and found a periodical laying open on his desk. There had been an advert for the incredible Panopticon of New York, and Archie had found himself being drawn back again and again to the fantastic images of acrobats and strongmen and lions and elephants and even performing children, six of them in a pyramid, all standing on each other's shoulders. Archie would have dearly loved to have seen the incredible Panopticon. He wondered whether he might even have been able to get a job standing in the pyramid. He was small and light, so he reasoned he would be ideally placed to stand at the top and had spent hours agonising over whether they would allow a child performer with a club foot. He knew he could never really see the incredible panopticon, he told Mr Sticks. It was in a place called New York that Sammy had told him was miles and miles and miles away on a railroad, and he could never walk so far, especially not with a club foot. Besides, no one was allowed to leave the poorhouse. The front doors were kept locked at all times, and the building was surrounded by an old iron fence topped with spikes almost as tall as Charlie. He'd never be able to climb over it, and even if he had somehow escaped, how could he hope to get all the way to New York? He didn't even know which direction it was in. He confided all this to Mr Sticks, who, in his wisdom, listened politely and objectively, and never once disagreed with anything Archie said. He just slouched there, grinning that same knowing grin. And so life went on in tiny, laborious increments. Archie retained his fingers in the workhouse, despite the best efforts of salt cod, and dangled by his ear while Mrs Gork interrogated him on how thoroughly he had swept the attic, and he chewed on stale black bread, while Mr Bartlett huffed and judded his way across the dining hall with gravy stains down the front of his blazer. And he had his stolen moments, hunkered down behind the refuse heap with Mr. Sticks. And so it may have continued indefinitely, had not one particular evening arrived and settled an eerie pool over the city. It seemed an evening like any other for the orphans, but the privileged laughed and played macabre parlour games and ate sweetmeats and thumbed their noses, while outside the shadows grew long and wise people locked their doors and threw another log on the fire. The shadows stretched across the whole city that evening, filling all the alleys and crooks and corners with inky blackness. As night fell over Malifaux on All Hallows' Eve, the shadows stretched over the Blade Street Children's Workhouse, pouring into the alcove behind the refuse heap. And in that black silence, there was heard a soft scraping of twigs. morning brought Archie awake with a snap. There was shouting and screaming and the thunder of small feet all around him. He rolled out of bed and was immediately shouldered aside by a larger boy racing by. Others followed, and although he could make no sense from the garbled shouting, he knew instinctively that something very strange was afoot. In all the time he had lived in the poorhouse, the morning routine had never deviated once. A tide of anxious children washed him downstairs, and he heard half a hundred wild speculations and dread whispers on what was the cause of this sudden anarchy. 
There were orphans everywhere, and not a one of them was doing any work. No brooms, no pails of water and horsehair brushes. No subdued, downcast faces anxious to avoid being singled out and made an example of. Where were the gaffers? Where was Mrs. Gork? Archie found her in the dining hall, surrounded by a tight throng of staring, whispering children. Many looked shocked. A few were tearful, a few others hiding smirks behind filthy hands. Mrs. Gork was sitting on the end of one of the long bench tables that was normally ringed by hungry children at this time of the morning. She was sitting facing the far wall, yet her pinched and somewhat surprised-looking face was staring back at them, on account of having been twisted around back to front. Her arms were twisted around in their sockets. Her legs had been twisted so far round that they crossed over each other and both feet stuck up at crazy angles, perhaps the source of the sniggering. Even her hands and feet had been twisted to point the wrong way. Ironically, her ears were quite untouched. Archie stared at the contorted dormitory master, as astonished as the rest of them. That she was quite dead was immediately obvious, but who was responsible for the dreadful deed was less so. Fresh, shrill cries started up from the workhouse. Some of the more institutionalised orphans had gone seeking a gaffer to try and re-anchor themselves in normality, but had clearly found something not to their liking. The mob of orphans swarmed through the double doors to investigate, a growing wave of excitement building, along with the volume of their animated discussions on what was happening. Saltcod was in the spinning mules. To say he was in the spinning mules was no understatement. And what's more, he seemed to be in most of them. A part of him, at least. In all honesty, it would have been very difficult to say which unfortunate soul's body was crushed and snarled and mangled amid the heavy iron machinery, had the instigator of this new outrage not foreseen a potential difficulty in identification and placed the sour-faced boy's severed head atop the nearest machine, quite untouched by the general carnage surrounding it. More squeals and shrieks and gasps exploded from the gathered orphans, but there was an increasingly prevalent sense of wicked elation among all this exclamation. Salt God had not been well-liked at Blade Street, indeed had possibly been even more unpopular than Mrs. Gork and it seemed that a fair proportion of the crowd was more titillated than horrified at his grisly demise. Archie didn't know how to feel. He, as had all of the orphans at one time or another, had wished a bad end to both the dormitory master and workhouse gaffer, although he had done so with the glib recklessness of one who knows such a thing would never actually come to pass. Or so he thought. More shrieking, this time from the kitchens, Archie was swept away with the rest of them to find the source of this third outrage, although a great many of them already suspected what they would find. Mr. Bartlett lay spread-eagled on his back in the middle of the kitchen. To say that he had put on fresh weight would have been an understatement. His stomach bulged like a dirigible over his motionless corpse, so enormously swollen that it had burst his vest, breeches, waistcoat and leather belt all, it looked like a vast, pale balloon projecting from his clothes. 
all around him were empty bread sacks, dozens and dozens of them that held the small black loaves fed to the orphans each morning. His mouth was wide open and still stuffed full of black bread, as presumably was the rest of him. On one of his chins perched a little piebald mouse, munching contentedly on a crumb of bread. The swarm of children finally broke. They ran every which way, some shrieking in terror, others in elation. They ran hither and thither, ignorant of the few remaining undergaffers who tried fruitlessly to retain some shred of authority. Archie ran with them, stumping as quickly as he could through the open kitchen door and out into the yard to escape the chaos. Behind him was a clamour of crockery and heavy copper kettles being thrown around as the rampaging orphans destroyed everything in their path. Almost on instinct, Archie retreated to the one place he felt safe, behind the refuse heap, where no one would find him. And there sat Mr Styx, as he always did, slouched against the wall with a crooked grin and nonchalant air. He looked exactly the same as he had when Archie had last spoken to him. Only, this morning there was a heavy leather pouch on the ground by his right hand. Archie stared at it. The pouch looked awfully reminiscent of the one that habitually dangled from Mr Bartlett's heavy belt every Friday afternoon when he returned from Slope Bark and Cutteridge. Only, it couldn't be. It was Wednesday morning and the only coin anywhere in the poorhouse was locked up in Mr Bartlett's safe. He poked at it cautiously with his club shoe. The bag settled fractionally, jingling. Archie swallowed, peering hard at Mr Styx. Surely not. Surely not. He looked around, convinced that this was some sort of jape, that Mr Bartlett and Mrs Gork and Saltcod would all suddenly appear behind him, laughing cruelly at the elaborate prank they had pulled. They had heard him whispering to Mr Styx and decided to play this cruel deception. Only no one appeared, other than the distant sounds of destruction from inside the poorhouse. The yard was deserted and silent. Archie chewed his lip and experimentally hefted the bag. It was really heavy, and clinked and jingled loudly as he struggled to lift it off the ground. He had no idea how much money was in there, but it was a whole lot. More than enough to get him away from here, away from Blade Street Children's Workhouse. Enough to get him out of Malifaux. Maybe even enough to get him all the way to the incredible panopticon in New York, a small, hopeful voice whispered in his head. But no. He was just an orphan boy, with a club foot, who couldn't even get out of the backyard without a stepladder. The fence was twenty feet high, and greased to discourage apprentice climbers. All the windows were barred and the front door was locked. The guildsman would come, and they'd take his bag of coins and put him back to work on the spinning mule with a new gaffer, even more monstrous than the last. A black despair would have probably crushed him there and then, had he not noticed that Mr Styx wasn't sitting quite exactly as he'd last seen him, after all. His left hand was sort of poking out, with one long, sticky finger pointing over into the corner of the building, where the kitchen wall met the fence. Archie followed the direction of the finger, 
and found he was looking at the furthest away iron fence railing, which had been bent outward by some unseen force to create a gap between the fence and the wall. Not a large gap by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly enough for a boy to squeeze through, if he was unusually small for his age. Mr. Sticks grinned. That's it for another episode of The Weird Chronicles. Join us next time for more tales of action and adventure.